Hi, I'm Greg Schaefer, and welcome to the Virtual CISO Moment. Jacob Horn joins us on this month's special end-of-month episode. He is the Chief Cybersecurity Evangelist for Summit 7. He is the host of the Summit Up podcast, and is also a certified CMMC professional in addition to some other designations and certifications. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Greg. It's my pleasure. It's, uh, this is a really great format. I, I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to digging into some aspects of CMMC. I, I appreciate a lot of what you do online with uh, on LinkedIn. You, you, your your posts there are so um, illuminating to me. I'm a I'm a registered practitioner. That's about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it I know it's helped a lot of people. But how how did you originally get into cyber? And well, how and why? And then tell us how that path went from the mm-hmm. beginning to where now. You're not only um, at Summit 7, but also doing the podcast. Oh, well, you know, my career arc has turned out exactly how I planned it all along, just exactly how I drew it up. Uh, <laughs> in actuality, it was a complete uh, accident. So uh, I originally, you know, I've been in cybersecurity now for about 15 years. The first eight of those years, I was active duty in the Navy. And when I originally enlisted in the Navy, uh, I I had no idea what cybersecurity was. I had no real interest in cybersecurity or technology in high school. I was playing football and doing high school kids stuff, and I needed to figure out a way to pay for school. And, uh, you know, the Navy recruiters offered me a cheeseburger, you know, and a hotel room to go downtown and take the ASVAB. And after I took the test and, you know, went back to work, they called me and said, hey, you know, we've got these new opportunities. You know, they started dangling enlistment bonuses, all the tried and true tactics. And, uh, And so off I went into the Navy, and they were at the time standing up a new program uh, to create uh, basically intelligence analysts to be detailed to the National Security Agency who specialized in uh, cybersecurity um, and all of the various helpful intelligence aspects, I'll say, involved with understanding things about the cybersecurity world that would benefit NSA intelligence reporting. We'll, we'll, We'll leave it at that. So I got to do a lot of very cool stuff very quickly, which is, you know, one of the great things about joining the military, especially mm-hmm. enlisting. Yep. Uh, you know, basically we got taken out of, uh, you know, normal high school kid and suddenly you're an NSA intelligence analyst, uh, which was wonderful. So got to do that for four years and really uh, was a tremendous perspective. Uh, but the way the Navy works uh, wasn't allowed to stay. And they sent me off to San Diego, which is a terrible place to be stationed, where I did a bunch of blue team work for Navy shipboard networks and assets and things like that. Pretty standard um, sort of uh, analysis and blue team style work. But that was really my first hint at the world of acquisitions and how important it was, because what would happen is we would show up to a shipboard network for a ship that's getting ready to deploy, doing their workups. And we would run our blue team assessment and give everybody the report. You know, we'd brief the CO and brief everybody. And every time we would see the same vulnerabilities, the same sort of security anti-patterns pop up and we would deliver the out brief and then nothing would change because the people on the ship don't actually control the architecture of what is on the ship. They just sort of operate the systems that are Mm -hmm. on the ship the program offices run the architecture and the baseline architectures are baked into a certain uh design sort of reference architecture 
because of the way the acquisition program works. So we were effectively not doing very much other than just sort of highlighting issues that had been baked in as a result of the acquisition process. Well, which, well that's that's kind of scary in a way, isn't it? It's just like it's very scary. So a lot of time, yeah, yeah. You're yeah, pointing well, out vulnerabilities where it's, oh, yeah. it's, it's like a, you need to fix these things, but because yep. of the fact that the folks that are running it don't actually have access or, or authority to change. They don't, have, they don't have control. They can't change the architecture. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. And so this happens a lot when you see headlines that say some weapon system has some flaw found in it or some vulnerability. Typically, the people operating the weapon system or the network associated with that weapon system, whether it's satellites or fighter jets or ships or whatever – by the time you get down to the process of it actually being maintained, uh, the decisions that occurred years and years prior in the acquisition process bake in uh, issues, right? And it just a, is a legacy. You've probably heard a lot of this discussion in the world of defense acquisitions. It makes a lot of sense when you're buying commodities like steel to build a fleet of ships over the next 10 or 20 years. doesn't work that great when you're buying network devices and computers and things right. like that, right? And so it lags behind. Now, I didn't really think much of it other than this is very annoying. So when I got out of the Navy, I went and did some time as a SOC analyst doing shift work, living the dream in Hawaii, and uh, forgot all about acquisitions. We decided that we wanted to come back to Southern California. And as it turned out, there is quite a bit of aerospace and defense acquisition work that occurs out here because of the very large aerospace and defense industry. So having a background in 853 controls, NIST frameworks, things like that, uh, as well as sort of this broad perspective on the world of defense acquisitions in terms of sustainment, um, you f I fit right in. And I suddenly found myself in the program office who were making decisions about weapon system design that in a few years would be maintained and operated by the folks who were uh, you know, getting blue team assessments. So I went from all the way at the bottom of the world, all the way to the top. And then all of a sudden the dots connected. So uh. after a few years in that ecosystem, uh, you know, I went over and worked for Northrop Grumman, which is, you know, very common to go from program office to large system integrator. One day in 2018, somebody slid a document across my desk and it was called NIST SP 800-171. And they said, what is this? And I said, I don't know. What, what is this? Why is this a weird, why is this a weird chopped up version of 853 controls? Like what, I don't understand what this is. And then I fell down that rabbit hole. Uh, and it, as it turns out, the, the world that I had been working in of ATO packages, authority to operate 853 control assessments, acquisitions, this sort of obscure defense world was suddenly leaking out into the private sector supply chains and small manufacturers who were supplying parts into this world, engineering, software development, basically anybody in the supply chain downstream from this world was now suddenly being roped into this type of conversation. And this completely blindsided everybody in the defense acquisitions world, the program office world, as well as the supplier supply chain world. Uh, so it opened an opportunity to try to bridge those two worlds based off what I had seen. As things evolved over time, it turned out that CMMC, a DoD program, uh, was right around the corner. So I basically accidentally ended up in a position uh, that when CMMC became a thing, 
Um, I was uh, sort of standing as a bridge between these two worlds, if you will, and, um, you know, turned LinkedIn into a hobby. And now here we are. So, okay. I might be, I might be incorrect on this, but I might be correct. I like to try to distill things down to, sure. to simple topics. The government was beholden, was required to reach so whatever level of maturity for 853 was required mm-hmm. based on um, the risk of assessment, the risk management framework, what have you there. Uh, and then that now became a requirement for the commercial sector, the private sector. But did 171 come about because 53 was too onerous and 171 was more or less kind of like a 53 light type thing? So the short answer is yes. So the way to think about it is that 800-171 is a derivative of 853. uh, And it is a heavily, NIST, whenever NIST chops up the 853 controls into smaller controls, it's a process called tailoring. So literally like taking raw material and tailoring a suit, uh, 800-171 is a heavily tailored subset of the controls in 853. Just conceptually, 853 is designed to be a very large toolbox of agnostic tools from which you are supposed to select and tailor controls for specific situations. So if you are in a program office and you're going to design a satellite ground control system that's going to allow operators to communicate and operate satellite systems, you would you know, draw out what the system's going to do. You would do your risk assessment and come up with what your risk tolerances are within the program. And then you would pull from the 853 catalog the required control minimums, and then you would tailor accordingly based off of your situation. That's the way that it's supposed to work in the federal environment under the risk management framework. You go all the way through that life cycle. The problem is the risk management framework and FISMA requirements that drive the requirement to use the risk management framework don't apply to the private sector. And the government discovered that they had a problem because a lot of the data that needed to be protected under FISMA via the risk management framework, you know, with 853 controls, was being sent out and shared at a very large level with companies that are not beholden to FISMA. They are only beholden to contractual requirements. And typically those contractual requirements were very nebulous uh, when they addressed what protections were required, if at all. So that spawned uh, basically what we now know as the CUI program, the Controlled Unclassified Information Program, not a DOD specific program that is a federal government wide program as it turns out years and years ago around 2010 2011 the DOD and the federal government were on parallel timelines the DOD was getting hacked like crazy weapon systems were being compromised they had an issue with their technical and engineering and manufacturing data flying out the door to other adversaries They wanted to increase the protections in the supply chain for that data. The problem was, at basically the exact same time, the Obama administration signed an executive order that gave all control of sensitive, unclassified information, now known as CUI, to the National Archives and Records Administration, or NARA. So when DOD 
started to issue regulations over controlled unclassified information to their supply chain, NARA said, no, 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 no. We're in charge. The executive order makes us the executive agent. We determine what the minimum standards are, not you. And so there was actually a fight. There was a big fight in the early 2010s about what that minimum baseline should be. What came out of that fight, now they call it a collaboration, is 800-171. So the output of this collaborative risk determination for minimum requirements to protect this data for all agencies was a collaboration between NIST, NARA, and DOD. So, and then moving forward now to CMMC, if I understand mm -hmm. CMMC correctly, and, and this is a very simple way of saying it, that CMMC version two, level two is essentially 171. It is exactly 171. So the best way, the best, simplest way to understand CMMC, CMMC is strictly a DOD program to assess whether or not contractors have implemented their requirements. By, by, by bringing in third-party assessors as That's opposed right. to them That's doing right. it themselves? That's right. So the case that the DOD has made for years is that they, and this shouldn't be a shock to anyone, uh, there's a supply shortage of talented people in cybersecurity, and they, the government can't pay people enough if you could even find them. And so the ability for the DOD to organically scale their assessment capability to verify that contractors have met their requirements doesn't exist. So they have to rely on a, an external program, which is now known as CMMC, which tries to establish a ecosystem of uh, certified third-party assessment organizations, effectively private companies with certified assessors who would do the assessment work on behalf of DOD for their contractors. But the relationship is you have minimum requirements in 800 -171, CMMC is a program that verifies those requirements. Now, there are other levels which come from other sets of requirements, which are, you know, level one or level three. However, the key thing to understand is that CMMC is not a set of requirements. It's not new. It is only verifying the implementation of longstanding pre-existing right. requirements. And this really is the part that I'm always foot stomping on LinkedIn and webinars. Basically, anybody that will listen is that... The ultimate trap that's occurring is that businesses effectively are falling into one of two camps. They either think that CMMC is real or they don't based off of changes and delays or whatever their perception is, but they almost always say the same thing. We will, we will do CMMC when it shows up in our contracts, and that causes a tremendous risk because what they are not understanding is that CMMC is designed to assess your existing implementation of the requirements. So if you wait for CMMC to show up in your contracts to start the implementation of 171, you are actually 6, 12, sometimes 24 months behind the curve for people that may have already implemented those requirements. And that's a gap that a lot of people aren't aware of. They think when it shows up in their contracts, that's day zero. You're actually a year to two years behind a lot of a lot of folks out there and that's probably the biggest risk out there to contractors because the, they don't have that realization and and we see it on our side we 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 work providing uh, virtual CISO services mm -hmm. and sometimes the initial contact it a lot of times the initial contact is 
we need to meet the requirements of this standard or this yeah. or this regulation or what have you. And that's okay. I think that that's a good um, doorway into building a security program. Absolutely. Never, never about building something just to reach compliance. But um, yeah, I mean, to your point, a lot of the times when we get particularly in the CMMC space, they're almost starting from scratch and they're, and, and they're like, well, we have to, we have to get this in right now because the contract yeah. is effective, like, you know, in two months. Yeah. And when we come back and say, uh, there's a lot of stuff here. I mean, you can't stand up a security program like that, even with That's 171, right. it, it's going to take some time. So, so, I mean, what can a, what can a business do, particularly small businesses that are you know, kind of like down the supply chain contractors, what can they do to better prepare or at least know about it? So the thing that I always recommend that everybody does, and this is coming from someone who works for a company that is a managed service provider. And we give this advice because it is the great equalizer among everyone, whether they are consultants or the government themselves or service providers or technology companies, right? The big advantage that we have is that because we are so closely tied to a NIST standard, even though it's a very narrowly tailored version of 853, is that there is a corresponding document that gives you the verification procedures for all of your security requirements. And it's known as NIST SP800-171A, the alpha version of NIST SP800-171. And this is actually the real center of gravity of this whole problem, because everybody who's familiar with 800-171 might know that there's 110 requirements. But in order to verify that those requirements are implemented, what NIST calls control effectiveness, right, requires you to step through a handful of steps for each one of those requirements. And all of those steps must be satisfied. There are actually 320 of those steps in the current revision of 800-171 at the time of this recording. So when we talk about whether or not you are getting uh, a good deal, whether you are getting somebody who's selling you a bunch of snake oil, right? Whether you are ready for an assessment, you know, all of these things revolve around 800-171. And what should happen, what I recommend everybody do, is if you are trying to shop for services, if you're trying to interview people to hire, if you are trying to do anything revolving around CMMC, CUI, 800-171, because they're all effectively talking about the same thing, you utilize 800-171A. For example, most companies that are small businesses are not going to be able to do the majority of these requirements in-house. They don't have the folks, they don't have the uh, budget, right? They don't have the resources. Most businesses in the supply chain will outsource these services to a service provider like Summit 7 or others. Mm -hmm. When you go through an assessment, that means that upwards of 50 to 75% of the questions that need to be answered in the assessment are being answered by your outsourced provider. And so the way that you know if they can do that is if you ask them the same questions that an assessor would ask. What you should ask for is what's known as a shared responsibility matrix or model mapped to 800-171A. A mm -hmm. lot of times what you'll see is vendors, service providers, things like that, they will map their services to 800-171, the 110 level, rather than the 320 questions that need to be answered in 171A. So the granularity is a little bit um, 
bracing at first. People don't really like the fact that it's so granular, but the advantage is, is that the same questions that a, a resource-constrained small business wants to ask, are these controls actually implemented? Are they operating effectively? Are they producing the outcomes I need to prove those things are true? Are the same questions that the assessors want to ask those small businesses and those same questions are contained in 800-171-A. So it's a bit, you know, it's it's sort of buried out there in the headlines and the changes and the, and the pod, you know, all the talk about CMMC. But if you use 800-171-A, which the CMMC assessment guide is just a, a different cover slapped on front of 800-171-A, right. it is the single way that you are able to evaluate whether people are telling you the truth or not when it comes to their ability to help you meet these requirements well and uh just as a side thing that i thought about too is you can't this this goes for any standard i think when you're bringing in a third party you can't just sort of like offload and say okay can you complete this for us yeah. you have to have some contact with the smes or mm-hmm. the smes depending upon there was the discussion is like how do you pronounce it you know <laughs> um there's always something like that on yeah sure yeah um but but I think small and mid-sized businesses in particular need to understand that, that you can't just like bring in a contractor and, and that they'll take care of it. Because mm-hmm. if, if, if a contractor says that we'll take care of it for you, we'll get it to you in two weeks. That's probably a huge red flag right there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that can be sped up via technological solutions, but the thing that folks need to remember is that technological functionality is only part of the equation, right? CMMC is a program designed to verify requirement implementation that is an assurance function. Much like you would try to provide assurance to an insurance provider to get a policy, they need assurances about whether what you're saying is true or not. Uh, The government wants assurances about whether or not you have implemented the things that you've said you'd implemented, because much like a privacy standard, you are a data steward for the government's data. They're the data owner in this situation. Actually, a, a very convenient way of thinking about CMMC is more like a privacy program than a holistic security program. The tailoring of 853 down to 800-171 is designed to only uh, say, what are the minimum requirements for protecting data confidentiality within the context of a pre-existing cybersecurity program. If you're a small business and you don't have a pre-existing cybersecurity program, which many don't, you are very far behind the baseline assumptions of 800-171. The great irony at play here is that CMMC stands for the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, but the, 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 the requirements that CMMC seeks to verify assume a tremendous amount of pre-existing maturity and so you are very, very far behind if you have a uh, an outsourced IT provider that's like, a lot of times what will happen is, you know, you have an outsourced provider and they'll say, yeah, we do HIPAA. It's fine. How different could it be, right? Well, there's no HIPAA A version, right? There's no, right. there's no assessment and verification procedure document associated with those things. You know, a lot of times what you'll see is like with ISO or with SOC or with HIPAA, things like that. All of the questions that might get asked during a assessment are just in the assessor's head. They're not written out anywhere. Right. You know, we have them sort of written down. That's why it's important to orient everything you're doing around those questions in uh, in 171A. 
So we're almost out of time. Briefly, <laughs> uh, the podcast. So you just started the podcast yeah. with the goal of actually explaining these concepts in much greater detail. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so the Summit Up podcast is uh, is what is what we're calling it, and effectively, it is very surprising to everybody that there would be so much to talk about when it comes to what should be a very simple regulation establishing a relatively straightforward assessment program. Yet every month there is probably, uh, well, as you've seen with our first episode, hours of things to talk about. So it's a long form podcast where my co-host Jason Sprosser and I. Uh, basically go through all of the headlines, newsworthy items that are CMMC adjacent, if not directly related to CMMC. Uh, we try to roll up all that information. Uh, and then, you know, we have all the timestamps and everything in the video. It's on all the platforms and everything. So if you're not refreshing LinkedIn every day to see the posts that uh, that come out, that's a great place to get up to speed on what happened in, in the previous month. Awesome. Um, future plans? Oh, man. So future plans. Well, you know, at this point, going into 2023, this is the crescendo before the other shoe drops, if you will, on the supply chain. So it's been a long road since 2020 when the regulation came out establishing the CMMC program. There's been a lot of calibration. There's been a lot of adjustment. There's been a lot of red tape and sausage making on the back end to make sure that it gets through the process. The big issue is that a lot of people have interpreted that that time as a delay and they've sort of equated that delay as an indicator that things might change. So moving forward, it's just going to be more to talk about and more to understand more dots to connect for everybody. So you're going to continue the mission of getting everybody, everybody into uh, knowledge with regards to CMMC and where it's going. I don't think the DOD is going to suddenly become a lot better at communicating (laughs) or especially visually. So, uh, you know, there's plenty for us to uh, try to bring value to everybody just in terms of getting everybody on the same page, uh, making sure everybody understands what's going on. Uh, There's a lot of smart people in the DOD working on the program. Uh, not a lot of folks who had comms degrees or marketing backgrounds that can, uh, you know, hold a human conversation. <laughs> so, uh, very quickly, um, when the like minute or two we have left something that you do to decompress from all the stress of working in the cyber and the CMMC world. Yeah. The best thing, and I would recommend this to everybody on a personal basis, uh, Brazilian jujitsu. It's great because, uh, you know, it's the one thing what, you know, a lot of times if you are in, you know, a lot of knowledge work type stuff, it's difficult to turn your brain off. It's very easy to turn your brain off when all of your closest friends are trying to, you know, choke you unconscious all the time. So uh, (laughs) after an hour or two of doing that in the evening, suddenly you haven't thought about work because you've been trying to, uh, you know, protect yourself, but it's, uh, it's great. It's great exercise. Uh, It's very cathartic. You have to be in the zone and focused on what you're doing. Uh, And so it's very easy to sort of switch your brain off of work and just not think about work for a while. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'll have to look that up. That is something that I have never considered looking into before. (laughs) It's great for everybody. Yeah, it's awesome. You don't, yeah, you don't have to be, it's any age, anybody in any various form of fitness. um, It's, it's really, really awesome. I would encourage everybody to, to check it out. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Wish we had more time, but Y'all, if you want to learn more about stuff, go out to their podcast because there's a lot of great information on there. But thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. And everybody stay secure.